Good morning, everybody. Um, just a couple of uh, kind of announcements I want you to be aware of. Again, it's, uh, we're in that season in the fall where there's just a lot that is happening, particularly around our go uh, mandate from Jesus Christ to share his love, to share his truth in a number of different contexts. And so to literally get you guys up to, up to speed, probably most of you know this, but uh, yesterday uh, there was about 200 and some of us, and uh, we actually partnered with a number of different organizations uh, that are uh, on the OSU campus, as well as a couple of churches, and uh, we were able to build two houses in about three hours' time, which was just crazy. Um, but it was a real great opportunity for us to, uh, to show the love of Jesus and to uh, give, it, give it kind of a real practical look to it. And so special thanks to everybody that was able to be a part of that. Now the good news is, is that for those of you that were not able to be a part of it, um, there are still, there's still an opportunity that you have uh, to contribute to it. And uh, we are going to next Sunday take up an offering for, uh, for those two houses. And uh, so if you want to be praying about that and then come prepared to give next week, um, the good news is, is that every year when we do this and we have an opportunity um, to, to do that, to give back to that, that it really kind of feeds uh, the excitement and the opportunity for us to continue. We were talking with um, the gentleman who is the, uh, kind of the leader here for Habitat for Humanity, and there really is a, probably a need for about five houses to be built in Stillwater every year. And I, I, I looked at him and I just said, when I hear that, I, I, I don't know why we can't be a huge part of meeting that need. Amen? Am I crazy? I think we can do this. And so who knows how many we need to do, but we will be praying about that and we will be willing to, um, to go out and to trust that this is an important thing. I mean, how many of you have a house? Raise your hand, live in a house or an apartment or a dormitory or something like that. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Amazingly, most of us. Um, how many of you are grateful for your house? Yeah, some people don't have those, and uh, I love the fact that we care about that, and so next week we get to, we get to give to that opportunity. Um, uh, another thing is that uh, we've got, oh, I better not forget this, um, this Thursday is our concert with a conscience, and Steve Carpenter is still desperate for people to come hear him sing, and so we would love uh, to give these two tickets away um, and amen, yes, Steve, he's not, he's not, a, not afraid to admit it. Um, so, does anybody want two free tickets to Concert with a Conscious Thursday night? Okay, I will put them right here. You can grab them right afterwards. Um, glad to, to, uh, to kind of lift that up because not only is it a great opportunity for us to just uh, be together and to listen to some great music, um, I've been to every one so far and they really are kind of a neat time for us to be together and celebrate. Um, but it's going towards a great cause, uh, some great mission stuff that's happening in Nicaragua. So that's, that's great. And then lastly, um, well, no, one more. Uh, we are leaving for Mexico. I know a lot of mission stuff this month. We're leaving for Mexico on October 16th, and there's still some spots available if you have an interest in seeing our site that we have in Piedras Negras, Mexico. We would love for you to come alongside of us and uh, to, to experience that, especially if you've never experienced it before. It really is an amazing opportunity to see what God is doing in that part of the world. And uh, a number of years ago when we had built a community center there, um, it was neat to see uh, Sunnybrook um, because the Lord had put it on our hearts when a number of other churches across America became really concerned about the violence and uh, kind of the, the, the tension that was existing in Mexico. A lot of churches didn't go down, and I remember talking to some church leaders down there, and they just kept saying, please don't forget us. Please don't forget us. 
And I'm just grateful that now that that has turned around and there are a lot of churches going back down, um, that we are continually a, a part of that whole thing. And so if you have an interest, please uh, reach out to me. Jim at sunnybrookcc.org is my email address, and I would love to help connect with you to be, uh, to be a part of that. Lastly, this is um, what it was like last week to be worshiping in Osaka. So we sang this one today here as well. So they'll sing a verse in English, and then the next one will be in Japanese. And then one in English, and then one in Japanese. And they actually do this because it's a real big reason why people want to come. And they want to have an opportunity to work on their English and then hear the gospel in the middle of it. And so it really is kind of a, a neat opportunity. The, the, the kind of the welcome is done in English and then in Japanese. And not only that, but the sermon as well. This is Jay Greer. He is the lead uh, organizer of all of Mustard Seed, which right now has two plants, one in Osaka and one in Nagoya, and a new one in Kobe, where they make the beef, you know. So here's Jay preaching on how they need to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And then Yoko, not Ono, will translate. Um, yeah, she's a Christian, neat lady. She was able, uh, she translated my revelation class. She said there were some words she didn't really know before, and so I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, what I really was impressed with was how clear Jay was with the need for these people, the people of Japan, to be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons why I found it so fascinating is because Japan is a very um, modern uh, very safe, very educated. Um, they don't have poverty like we have even here in America and other parts of the world. Um, so you, when you're in a, in a culture like that, I mean, where, where we were staying, we didn't really have to worry about, although we did, but we didn't really have to worry about locking our doors. It, it wasn't uncommon for people to just kind of leave their bikes right there. Don't have to always lock them up. Some did, but not many of them didn't. Because who would steal your bike? Like, that's just not appropriate. People were really, really kind. Brady Moore had a hard time with this one, but it was kind of fascinating. So when you buy something, okay, when you purchase something, they're ringing up the price, and then the, the person beside the cash register loves to point out the price. Right? And they're saying it in Japanese. I have no idea what the number is. I'm looking at it. But they don't just, that'll be $58.23. It's just kind of like, hey, just so you know, it's kind of like a, you know, this, this, Price is right, kind of a moment, right? And so they sit there and they point to it and you say, thank you very much. And then when, when you hand the money, they won't take the money from you because that's rude. So they have a little tiny tray on the, on the counter and you put the money in the tray. Brady couldn't figure that out. He just kept trying to give them the money and they would point at the tray. Because to take money like that is just rude. You know, I'm sure you feel that way, Right? And so, and then they, they, they give you the money back. They love giving, and they kind of feel a little bit uh, guilty in taking. So it was an amazing experience to be in this culture that was peaceful and kind and generous and all of these things, and without Jesus. Drew said last week in his message that the difference between him 
and the really nice person is Jesus. And I would argue that makes all the difference in the world. To be in Japan was this amazing reminder that we're not interested in behavior modification. That the confusion that can exist within the Christian community is when we create a culture that is nice and kind and gracious and appropriate, but empty in the middle because Jesus Christ does not live there. That's broken. It's incredibly broken. And so I know that you and I have all of these struggles with our culture and how broken and how messed up it is. The question is, is are we willing to speak the truth about it? So this morning's message is titled, Safe Sins. Do you believe there are any? You sure act like there are. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9, what we're going to see is that sin is this very ugly, destroying presence in our lives. It is, uh, it is destructive by its nature, and extreme measures need to be taken with sin. But we sure don't act like that. I mean, this morning, Callie was talking about an earthquake. <laughs> Jay was describing last week in Osaka how the Japanese people are, love to be prepared. They're so well prepared. I mean, literally, for almost anything. They're ahead of the curve. And, and yet, they are not prepared for Jesus to return. Not at all. Are you like that? You know how to be organized, you know how to be prepared, you know how to be truthful, but in this one area, when it comes to sin, we have really hurt ourselves by failing to understand or to take seriously what sin is really all about. And I know what you might be thinking, well, Jim, what about grace, and what about mercy, and what about forgiveness? And, and, and I promise you, I will not forget those this morning. I would even argue those don't take a backseat to this at all. If anything, they give us a greater understanding of what we need grace for, what we've been saved from. It's the answer, sin. This absolutely destructive, um, destroying presence in our lives that wreaks havoc on marriages, on families, with neighbors and coworkers in every avenue of our lives, sin is destroying us, and we don't even have the, um, the awareness to speak truthfully about it. So how'd we get here? I, I think when you look at it, see, where, where do we get the idea of safe sins from? Well, I, I think it really b begins by you and I just almost intuitively knowing that there's an understandable sin that we all have, Right? Like, this is how we first approach the issue of sin. I mean, you get it, right? Like, teenagers will be teenagers. Like, when you have parents and, and they're about to have teenagers, what do you say? Now, listen, here's what it's going to be like. They're going to make all these mistakes. I just need you to understand this is normal. They're going to be rebellious. They're going to want to test their boundaries. They're going to want to, right? So, hey, this is just the way it is. And it just keeps on going. Right? We, we, we prepare parents for the terrible twos and the terrible threes and the terrible fours and then the terrible fives and then the, I think I'm going to die sixes, right? And it just keeps going on and on and on. And, and, and before you know it, it's like, listen, you know what college is like, right? Like, it's just college. Like, don't take it seriously. 
You know, you know what it's like. You know what marriage is like, right? I mean, marriage is just hard, and, and, and we're just selfish people, and marriage is just this difficult, it's just this, this struggle that we have, right? Like, you just know that. It's understandable, right? And it just keeps going on and on until we're all a bunch of old, angry, selfish people going, yeah, this is, don't you get this? This is just the way life is. That's not the way the Bible describes it, actually. But how do we get to safe sins? By just realizing it's just the way that we are. And we move quickly from this understandable to just outright accepted. How many of you have looked around at the world the last, say, 20 or 30 years and just thought, how did we get here? How did we begin to embrace this kind of lifestyle? Anybody ask that question? I have. How did we get here? Well, here's the interesting part. You, you back up 50 years, and guess what they were doing? How did we get here? Back up 50 years before that, guess what they were thinking? How did we get here? Back up 50. I mean, we could keep on going all the way back. I do not think there was ever a time where people were thinking, oh, yeah, this is good. Yeah, I really like this. I mean, I've gone back. I've read sermons from, literally, from, from the year zero, and they're complaining and really arguing about rebellious young people and selfish old people. And this is just the kind of traits that existed in us all the time. And it's amazing how quickly you and I even fail to recognize, how did we get here? Well, we, we begin by just understanding. And then that understanding moves to acceptance and now all of a sudden we are finding ourselves in opposition to God. Because that's where we end up. That's why this text is so strong. I, I want, one other thing in terms of, I want to deal with in terms of how we get here. And I'm really indebted um, to a kind of a more modern theologian by the name of Derek Rishmawi. Who wrote an article, a fascinating article on, on, on wrong ways that we talk about sin. And I think that's part of our problem is that the way that we discuss it in our Christian community begins to distort our understanding and even our emotional uh, response to the issue of sin. He, he lists, I'm not saying you have to buy everything he says, but he, he lists five ways in which the church today in America deals with sin, and I, I, it was, was creepy was I found myself in, in all of these camps, all five of these, okay? The first one he labels as the youth group way of sin. I don't know how long it's been since you've been in youth group, but I don't think this is just um, limited to, uh, to people in high school or junior high. When you're in that small group context, what Derek says is the discussion then moves where people begin to talk about areas of struggle. Don't call it sin. I, I'm not sinning, I'm struggling. And that's the beauty of that word, right? Is that in the end, I don't even want to call it what it really is. So this becomes a struggle that I have. One person shares their struggle. Another person then identifies, which is a big word for us today, identifies with that same struggle. Pretty soon, it's almost comical. And we're laughing at our little faults and failures. So sin is named lightly. So barely, if it's named at all, he says we are lulled into a false sense of security with very little urgency about the sickness that is destroying our souls. Because it's, you know, my struggle, and you get it, right? Come on, you understand, right? So let's, let's just accept this. The second way that he describes it 
um, and I, I think he's got a personal bent against uh, this, this particular way of doing it, and I guess all of them are a struggle. I don't want to say this is just for those that are part of the millennial generation, but this definitely is more true now than it has been in the years past. In, 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 in way number two, he calls it the millennial way. And the millennials are uh, kind of that, that generation that is now kind of in that high school and early college age era. Um, they're, they're another generation is on their heels, and, and it's always good for sociologists to try to label us. I know we all hate being labeled. There are some truths to hear about how we act with one another. Tell me if I'm wrong, but he describes this. Tell, tell me if he's wrong. Derek describes the, the, the new wave of talking about sin as... Um, as being honest and authentic, right? Did he not nail it? It's about authenticity. He says, um, we sit around and we confess our sins, sometimes very publicly, listen to this, but all too often as a way of cutting off criticisms or any call to repentance. Hey, I shared, man, I shared. How dare you now hold that over me? I was, I was authentic. I was real. How dare you call me to something when I, when I opened up and then you said that? Okay, that's it. I'm, I'm shutting down. This is interesting. He goes on to say, since we've owned our own messiness, that kind of that classical, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. Hey, I said my bad. Yeah, I know you said my bad. Now, these are the consequences of being bad. He says, we confess our sins. We've now owned our messiness. So how can anyone demand anything more from us? And if they do, they're just pharisaical, judgmental people. He says this, and, and, and I don't think this is just for millennials. This, I think everyone can embrace this. Listen to this statement. I love what Derek writes here. Our motive in this kind of authentic piece, listen to this. Our motive isn't genuine brokenness before God, but it's actually a very ironic way of demonstrating our righteousness through our willingness to appear broken before others. And look how righteous I am, man. I was, so, I was so transparent with you. And it shuts down. It shuts down genuine confession and repentance. The next way he describes, he calls it the sectarian way. I would describe it like the hypocritical way. The church is and continues to be guilty of this one, but so does the world, okay? Here's what he says here, and the church is what I care about most. There are certain churches that cultivate a way of speaking about sin, and it's really serious. That you can tell by the passion and the excitement and the way they're able to label specific sins as wrong. But instead, they usually target those that are outside of their group. This is the hypocrisy piece. It involves speaking of sin as a practice or a feature that people out there have, not us people in here. But what usually happens in moments like this is that we select which sins we completely disapprove of. Uh, while all the time just failing, kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. 
and this is not a right way to speak about sins. Number four, he describes what is known as the mainline way. Now, I don't know if you know uh, the phrase mainline. There, there are within uh, Christian denominations mainline churches, and uh, there really have been over the last 200 years or so an incredible separation within every denomination between those who are mainline and, and, and those that have been more kind of labeled evangelical or fundamental. The fundamental issue on this is actually their understanding of the Bible as the inspired word of God. And so this isn't a new phenomenon. This didn't come out of the 60s. Well, okay, it did. The 1760s or the 1660s, where all of a sudden the Bible, with its archaic understanding of God and of the world, began to look not at sin but at social problems. And so instead of actually speaking about sin, some great preachers out of the late 1800s and early 1900s in America here were one of the first ones to say, we're not, it didn't happen just in Houston a couple of years ago when a preacher of a big church decided, I'm not comfortable with using the word sin. That's not new at all. There have been some phenomenal preachers who have done an amazing job offering therapy to people. Offering more healing. And the good news is, I never have to use the S word. That you and I can come and we can glean some, some really deep truths from the Bible so that we can deal with maybe some of the great social issues of our time, but we never say the word sin. It, it, this mainline way, and, and, and by the way, we can be guilty of this, it, it fails to recognize there is a vertical dimension to our sin. Okay, we're, we're all, we're, all we're talking about is the horizontal element. Richard Niebuhr says this about this idea of failing to talk about sin in the church. He says this, because think about our gospel, right? He says this, when we talk about this idea of uh, the need for us to have Jesus, but we never really deal with sin, what we're really doing is talking about a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. In the end, our whole message just feels empty. If I don't want to talk about sin, like why did Jesus die? If I don't want to talk about the, the genuine rebellion against God, then tell me why Jesus had to come and die. Like why is there hell, these biblical ideas? And, and this is, can be us too. I mean, you might say that's not me, but it is an awkward and an uncomfortable thing for us to discuss. He says this about this tendency for us to be so focused on the, on the horizontal that we fail to recognize the vertical dimension. It means all we spend our time, and this is true about our generation as well, we spend the majority of our time talking about human injustices. And we can rally around issues like sexism and racism and oppression and greed. And we fail to recognize that what is at the very core of all of those terrible sins. Anybody for sexism? Raise your hand. Anybody for racism? Raise your hand. Anyone for human slavery? Raise your hand. Anyone for selfishness? Anyone for living for themselves, following their own hopes and dreams at the expense of the kingdom? Whoa, 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 dude, that's, that's too close to home. And it really is with a lot of churches, it is so easy for us to talk about. I mean, right now with all of the terrible things that are happening in our world, and this is why I think we fail to deal with what is really going on, is it is so easy for us to talk about those things, sexism, racism, oppression, 
But when we never talk about personal sin, then we never get at the heart of the matter. Social problems are created by individuals who are choosing to live for themselves and against the way of God. And we got to remember that there is both a horizontal and a vertical if the mainline way fails to recognize that vertical dimension. The last way that he describes is known as the evangelical way, and we can be guilty of this. Basically, it's within the evangelical church, within that fundamental church, what we love to express or talk about is the sin that you and I have before God and God alone. Psalm 51, David says it, against you alone have I sinned. And so as long as we have prayed, confessed, and felt sorry before God, we literally pat ourselves on the back and say we've taken sin seriously. And we fail to recognize the carnage and the sin that is wreaking havoc on our lives, on our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at the workplace. I like what he says, closing line, instead... When, when we are only interested in the vertical and we fail to recognize the horizontal, he says this, we act as if receiving forgiveness rules out the hard work of rendering restitution, working on reconciliation with those that we've wronged. I read through those five ways and I thought, I'm guilty of all of them. And so we fail to deal with sin. And it just haunts me in my relationships, horizontal and vertical. And that's why Jesus' words come shockingly clear in these three small verses. Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9. Last week, Drew ended his text in verse 6. If anyone tries to, uh, or anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it is better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and then thrown into the sea. And verse six literally stands as a bridge verse with those first five verses about what it means to be great. And then this next section, and we're gonna continue on. By the way, you're gonna walk out of here and you're going to wonder, well, how do we confront? How do we speak about sin? Well, we'll deal with a little bit of that today. But the good news is that if you keep reading through Matthew 18, you're going to see that sin is kind of the theme of the chapter. So when you walk away, well, how do I um, confront sin? Or how do I allow sin to be confronted in me? Just don't worry about confronting others. One of the best things that you and I can do are live lives where we can be confronted. Humbling ourselves, like Drew described last week, so that we can receive the truth about the brokenness that exists in us and our own sinful bent. Verse seven says this, woe. Jesus will say blessed, which means happy or congratulations, and he will say woe. It's not just stop. It literally is like warning, I want you to take heed. I want you to pay attention. I want you to, to recognize the road that you're on and the destruction that is all around you. Woe to the world for the temptations for, to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. And then he says in verse eight, and, and, and I just want to caution you here. Before you dismiss this, listen to it first. Before you excuse this, hear what he says. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life, interesting, enter life, like the fullness that God has for you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So here's what we do. We we look at the text and we hear that text and we go, okay, well, Jesus is exaggerating. Jesus is speaking like way over the top. You know what I mean? He's just kind kind of crazy at this moment. Jesus has lost control. I love texts like this because it forces us to deal with a Jesus, again, that you and I are sometimes uncomfortable with. I, I find, I've loved the last few years as um, the fundamental evangelical church in America has had to come to grips with some of the ways that we have softened up the true understanding of who God is, especially dealing with the particular religion that comes out of the Middle East that we consider to be abhorrent and wicked and evil because of the way their God is, and and we convince ourselves that our God would never, what kind of God would ever tell his people to kill other people? So glad our God never did that. Uh, Have you read the Bible? Now hear me, I promise you it's more complicated than that. I'm not even trying to go, they're the same, but have you noticed that when we start to lift up certain virtues above the God through whom those virtues should be understood, it gets complicated. What, what kind of leader would tell people to cut off their hands and feet or eyes? What kind of nut job would do that? Hey, um, you're talking about Jesus. Yeah, but he's exaggerating. Exaggerating what? Well, let's, let's look at this. He is exaggerating. And how I know this is that if you look at Matthew chapter 15, we're not going to look at it here, but Matthew chapter 15 verses 10 through 20 teaches this, that it is not your hands that cause problems. It's not your feet that cause problems. It's not your ears or your tongue or your eyes that cause problems. It's not where sin comes from. Sin does not come from without that when it comes to like, for example, like pornography, that's not out there that causes the problem. You know that, right? It's something in here. It's something in here that wants to objectify the other gender. It's something in here that wants to exploit people. It's something in here that wants to covet or steal or be angry or murderous. It's not out there. It's in here. Jesus makes it very, very clear. What defiles a person comes from within the heart. So, so Jesus obviously is exaggerating, but here's what you and I do. We go, he's exaggerating, he doesn't mean it. No, 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 he means it. This is the part that you cannot escape. Are you ready for this? He is serious, like 100% serious, that if you choose between having hands for eternity or going to hell Choose the no hands. If you have to choose between not being able to walk, literally being lame, or being cast into hell, then choose the lame part. Choose the lame. If you have to pick between being blind 
in life. Notice what it says. If you go into life, it is better for you to go into life blind than to go into hell with your eyes. See, and what you and I have done is we've taken this text and we've said, ah, he's exaggerating. And and then we convince ourselves, well, cutting off my hands won't do anything. And then we are one step away from going, you know, I understand why we sin. I get it. And then it's accepted and we consider it to be safe. And we fail to recognize that there is still a judgment that is coming and God will not be mocked. I'm fascinated by the way that you and I speak about sin and console people in their sin. Callie this morning was describing fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You, you know what you and I do almost all the time? We love to say to her, hey, it's okay. It's okay for you to be afraid. I totally understand that. And it's, God thinks it's okay for you to be afraid. Like it's just so understandable for you to be afraid. This is how I know we're being somewhat hypocritical because if she picked another sin like sexism or racism, we wouldn't go, oh, that's okay. Would we? We wouldn't go, oh, it's okay to be a racist. No, you can't be a racist and be a Christian. But it's okay that you're afraid. It's okay that you're selfish. It's okay that you're thinking about you. You need to think about you right now. You really do. You need to think about you. No, you don't. I know it sounds crazy. No, you don't. That's what gets, that's what's gotten, I'll just tell myself, that's what gets me into trouble. And yet, this is our tendency, is it not? And Jesus says, and this is what we teach others. This is what concerns me the most when people want to speak really boldly about, and and as our morals begin to change, hey, it's okay. It's okay. I just want you to know it's totally okay. Um, I, I find this fascinating. If I were to console, say there's a believer here, person X, and I want to console them and let them know that God loves them and God cares for them and that God's going to accept them, okay, is that a good thing? Don't say anything yet. Then there's a person over here, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm warning them, and I'm, I'm, I'm cautioning them, woe to you. I think you're in in danger of the fires of hell. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You you know, what's interesting is is that if I reassure you that everything is going to be okay, the Bible says what's wrong with that is that only counts if everything really is going to be okay. For you to comfort someone in sin lines up very clearly with this line up here on the top that leads one of my little ones into sin. If you've got a friend in sin and you're coming alongside of them because you're a good friend, if we could figure out friends don't let friends drive drunk because of the destruction that that wreaks on society and real human lives, then friends don't, biblical friends don't let, Christian community type friends don't let other friends Stay in sin. That's why we need to talk about it. That's why we need to be honest about it because Jesus says, if any one of you encourages sin, moms and dads, when we look the other way, when we excuse it, when we decide we're going to support it, because you know what? I'm their dad. I got to support them no matter what. I've had more than one conversation. This is why um, I wonder if I have very many friends. But it's one of those moments I was with somebody and they were talking about, well, they're my daughter and I'm going to support them. 
And I, I've, I've, I've done this a couple of times. I thought, wow, I thought more of you until now. Like, I get what you're saying. I get that you love your daughter or your son or your friend or your spouse. I get that. But do you love them enough so that you warn them of the judgment that is to come for the sin that they are embracing? So if we're going to talk about sin, we're going to talk about it honestly. Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 says this. Speaking about Cain and Abel, so you know the story, right? Cain and Abel, they're at war with one another. Actually, Cain's at war with Abel. And God goes beforehand, and he cuts it off, and he says to Cain, who was very angry over the issue of worship, by the way, it's kind of fascinating, Cain's sacrifices are not being accepted by God while Abel's are. And God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? The answer is yes. Like Cain knows what to do. Cain knows what to do, refuses to do it. I I see this all the time, and I see it in me. I'd love to say, I just see it in other people. No, I see it in me. You begin to tell me where I'm wrong and what I need to do, and are you like this? Dig your heels in. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Like, there's no way I'm going there. Like, I I think I'm right, and I just keep digging my heels further and further into the ground, and you're going to almost have to drag me there. God says to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Cain's response from this, from his actions, is I don't care. Like, I know if I do what is right, I'll be accepted, but I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I refuse to change what I'm doing. See, this is what you and I do when we move from, hey, that's understandable. And it's it's, it's not just those overt sins. I would say I see it most when I just want to justify a selfish attitude, an unforgiving spirit. Like, right, I was really hurt by them. Like, I can, you get it, right? Like, you're with me on this one? Like, I can really stick it to them, right? You're with me, right? Tell me you're with me on this one. And God says, you know that if you do what is right, and I'm going, hey, but God, like, I'm justified in this. And look at what God says. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. um, The ESV here takes a little bit of liberty on this idea. Um, It Literally, the text just says, sin desires you. You must control it, but sin desires you. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase that we see in chapter 3 between um, Adam and Eve. Your desire, speaking to Eve, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Sin desires you and you must rule over it. It's the exact same Hebrew construction. The word for desire means to control. The idea of a a wife's desire for her husband is not, oh honey, you are so cute. And I just want to make you dinner. That's not what it is. What it's describing in that text is a war between husband and wife, my way, no, my way, my way, no, my way. And in the same way, that con- that's what sin desires. Sin desires to control you. It, it desires to taint your thinking, to adapt your lifestyle so that you will then oppose God. You will oppose his way in your life. You will oppose him so that one day he will finally oppose you. That's what sin does. 
and it is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and it will destroy you. Is that how you look at sin? No. Like, sometimes I watch TV shows, that, 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 and I laugh at sin. You do that? You ever watch a TV show, and just it's hilarious. I know I shouldn't laugh at this, but it is hilarious. Yeah, Jesus died for this, but it is so funny. You need language like this. Cut off your hands, cut off your feet, couch out your eyes. Do you hear the degree to which Jesus is saying, wake up, church. I love how in 1 John 1.8, John describes just how dangerous this issue of sin is. It says this, if we have no sin, if, or if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, here's what's wrong, is that you and I would never say we have no sin. Now, we have decided, again, kind of between that badge of authenticity and it's just my struggle, we have decided to, to so get it out there that we never really have to deal with it. Like in the end, it's just my struggle, it's just my struggle, it's my struggle. I'm being honest, I'm being real, I'm being genuine. It's just who I am. And we fail to recognize the work that Jesus Christ is now doing through us. So do you see the problem? Do you see the difficulty that comes? See, can, can, can you talk about it? I, even more than talk about it, I mean, I remember one time I was preaching a number of years ago um, from the book of Romans. And in that book of Romans, it's a, it's a pretty difficult text to, to listen to, and it's, it describes sin and our sinful behavior. And I still remember preaching on it. And I, I, as, a, as a, one of the ministers here, I get an opportunity to, uh, to know a lot of what's going on in a lot of our lives. And I, I, there was one particular person who was really struggling with some sin. And I'll never forget, as I'm getting into the middle of this message from Romans, them getting up and walking out. I remember, I'll never forget, I usually don't notice. People say, hey, I'm sorry I got up. I usually don't notice if you get up and leave, go to the bathroom, take a phone call. I have no idea. Really, I don't. Majority of the time, I don't. This one I remember vividly. Talk to them afterwards. Is that rough? Oh, that was rough. Couldn't take it. Couldn't take it. I remember going, that is so true. That sin does that, doesn't it? It makes us want to flee. And then the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, the more I recognized that I guess there's two ways to deal with sin. One is to get up and walk out. The other one is just sit here and smile at me. Still not dealing with it. Okay, I'm not going to get up now, obviously, right? <laughs> I will literally wet this pew. I am not getting up right now. <laughs> but think about it, right? Is it not true? There are two ways for us to deal with it. One way is to get up and walk out. The other one is to put on a face. It's wrong, and it's wrong. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? I want to jump down to uh, a text. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John 1, 8. These, both these verses should be underlined. 1 John 1, 9, or 1, 8 says that if we say we have no sin, we are lying and deceiving ourselves. The next verse goes on to say, so how do we deal with this, Jim? I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about how bad it is and how destructive it is. Well, what do we do? Look at what verse 9 of 1 John 1 says. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
See, it's those two verses together. Don't say you don't have sin, confess it and experience true life. See, I'm, I'm here this morning to not say your problem is that you have sin in your life and you're not taking it seriously. It, it's actually way more complicated than that. Like in this text, really in these three verses, what Matthew is writing and what Jesus is driving at is you need to take sin seriously. And you and I need to take sin seriously. We need to stop and reflect on how destructive sin has been in my life, in my marriage, with my children. Um, I'll never forget when a number of years ago, my wife and I were dealing with some sin in our own family, and my boys, and it wasn't flippant, but my boys kept reminding me, but dad, you preach grace all the time. And we have all these illustrations and stories about people who mess up and the grace that comes in, and I'm just thinking, oh, you little rascal. But it's true. So, so, so what should I do? Should I just preach that sin is like terrible or should I preach that God is great? How about both? Like what do you do? You confess your sin. You don't lie. You, you quit, quit hiding. You quit running. You quit labeling it as a struggle or you quit that authenticity badge. You quit throwing up the don't judge me speech. And you literally say, hey, like Drew preached last week, what genuine humility is all about, I surrender. The truth is that sin is destructive and terrible. It will tear your life apart, your marriage apart, your family apart, our society apart. It will ultimately have you at war with the creator of the universe, and he never loses a battle. But Jesus Christ died to correct all of that. You know what's greater than all of your sin? Jesus, and his plan, and his death, and his redeeming blood, we, we, we ate and drank the reminder of that today. So you don't need to walk away and go, yeah, I need to take more sin more seriously, and I need to become more educated and more self-controlled and committed. No, what you need to do is humble yourself, recognize what Jesus did that you cannot do, and give your life to him. See, what Paul says is, is that you and I, as we put away sin, we do that by focusing on Jesus. I'm really not here to tell you you're a bad person. I think you know that. What I'm here to tell you is, is that Jesus is greater than your brokenness. So you can be honest. You can confess your sin. One of the, one of the beauties of that struggle that my family and I went through was we never had to look over our shoulder because we decided we were just going to be honest about our struggle. And you know where that comes from? It comes from the forgiveness that can only come in Jesus. In a community that celebrates forgiveness over sin. Do you know that? That's who we are. And that is why you can find that same peace. That you now, by the Holy Spirit, are given the strength and the power to say no to sin and yes to God. So don't accept it. Uh, don't, don't just get into this understandable game. Don't run from it. But by recognizing how destructive sin is, apply the amazing blood and work of Christ and experience new life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth that can only come from Jesus and for the hope that can only come from him. I thank you 
for the simple fact, God, that we can deal with a text that talks about us cutting off our hands and gouging out our eyeballs and get what he's saying. That, that God, when I look at just the destructive um, extent to which Jesus says we should go, he actually went to that level. He gave his life for us. His flesh was torn. He, he died so that we might live. And God, that just reminds us how terrible sin is. That God, sin killed your son because you wanted to redeem for yourself a people. And so we give you praise. Thank you for giving us life that we do not deserve. But God, you deserve us. By your grace and mercy, we celebrate these things. In Christ's name, amen.